welcome to Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Hello. And uh, today... Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Happy Valentine's Day. Let's bring in some love right off the bat. (laughs) Today, uh, we're going to be talking about historical contributions of African Americans, and we are honored to have uh, Reverend France Davis uh, with us today, along with Adrian Andrews, who is the Assistant Vice President for Diversity at Weber State University, as well as the Chief Diversity Officer, and uh, my friend. Uh, who also served with me on the, uh, she was at the time the chairman of the uh, chairperson of the uh, MLK Commission. I was just an active committee member. I don't know. I think you were leading the meeting, so I feel like that was, the, 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 I, I want to keep using that. So, um, Reverend Davis has, is I guess, you've been the, uh, the pastor for Calvary Baptist Church for how long? I was the pastor for some 46-plus years. You retired, what, four retired months ago? December 29th. Or December. Oh, it hasn't but been. It feels I, like four what months. What you just telling me, though, it's not really retirement, right? No, retirement is not all that uh, it, uh, people suggest it means no work, but it means more work. Now it's work that you choose to do as opposed to work that you have to do. I got you. Well, I know um, I've talked with you before uh, when, uh, for instance, uh, when uh, Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2009, you and I had a discussion afterwards because I was covering uh, the inauguration in Washington, D.C. And uh, when you were, uh, were a younger man, you uh, actually participated in the March on Washington. I did. And so can you talk to me about what you think, when, we, when you think of Black History Month specifically, but... Um, the contributions of African Americans throughout our history. What, what, have, what do you feel like uh, society thinks of when they think of that? Well, when Black History uh, started, it started as a week, and it was started in the early 1900s, uh, and designed to emphasize the positive achievements that African Americans have made to this country. We were a part of the building of America from day one, and uh, as a part of that, we're oftentimes left out or ignored in terms of the history books. So what uh, was intended with the initial week and later on in the 50s becoming a month was to have uh, black history be uh, included uh, for African Americans just as any other history. My goal, and I think the goal today is to have black history integrated into all of the history, all of the uh, textbooks, everything that's happening where African Americans have participated. Which I think is really important for people like me. Um, and uh, I I have something to share a little bit later about Reverend Davis at all. Maybe the last segment. So, um, uh, because I, you were a great help to a young reporter. I was here, uh, very young, and I wanted to write about what was then called minority issues. <laughs> um, and I think they were minority issues because uh, they just weren't. Um, we didn't have a lot of we didn't have a lot of people of color in the newsroom. We still don't, and we didn't have um, we didn't see them as sources for everyday stories. So when you looked at getting a doctor, a quote from a doctor. You probably went to a doctor that you knew or that you that looked like you, and so when everyone's white and that's our experience, that's what they that's those were the the voices of authority in the mm. media, and so I think the integration. Um, I just was exposed just uh, you know rant, I had a great high school teacher to uh, Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison became my favorite author um, at a young age, and um, and it did change the way I I think that I saw things, but it didn't change my socialization. And so where I had a sensitivity, but I didn't have that sort of integrated idea. And it was really having people 
helped me with story ideas that I started seeing all these authorities out there that we just in the media ignored. And I think if we were teaching history as inclusive, like every, all of the all the different authorities that are out there, it wouldn't be. Uh, um, I'm guilty of it. I did a whole package on who were the black first in Utah, which honestly was probably a good story for me to do because it got me into the black community and it let me know that their roots are de- as deep as any of the pioneers. <laughs> well, in fact, African-Americans were in Utah 20 years before mm-hmm. those who are considered the pioneers that settled the community. Yeah. James Beckworth and others were here doing fur trapping in the 1820s. Mm-hmm. And everybody thinks about the 1840s, but nobody thinks about the 1820s when African-Americans were actually already here. Adrian, you, uh, as a person who uh, understands kind of the academic part of this, the way you explain it is that uh, it's those who write the history get to tell it? That's correct. And they also get to determine what counts as history and what gets excluded. (coughs) And so when we think about what we learn in our K through 12 system, as well as in our higher ed Mm -hmm. or continuing ed opportunities, what we learn is largely shaped by what the people who are teaching us know and what they were taught. And so, as Amy said, if you weren't taught to see the world in its complexity, then you are not able to understand and teach others that complexity. And I, of course, was very fortunate in that um, Reverend Davis was Dr. Davis for me at the University of Utah when I was an undergrad, and I took the African-American experience from him as a student. I ended up minoring in ethnic studies with a focus on African-American studies because of that class and because of the fact that I grew up here in Utah as one of a very limited number of people who identified as black in my community. And if it weren't for people in my family and that were connected to me who shared other black leaders, inventors, creators, writers, doers, activists, I wouldn't have known because the schools weren't giving me that content. And we still have that battle today with textbooks coming out of California and Texas in particular about how black history gets framed, whether or not it's talked about as slavery or guest workers or whether or not the first immigration program was slavery. These are very interesting ways to reframe a history that is painful and dark and that we must directly own and address and figure out how we want to reshape our movements forward and make sure that we tell the story, the real true story of American history, which is black history. We set this up, though, from the start with the Constitution of the United States defining some people as whole people, others Mm -hmm. as no people, and others as three-fifths of a person. And ever since that day, we've been having to try to bring some kind of equality and fairness about all of the peoples of our respective communities. That's for the country as a whole, as well as for the state. When we come back, what I want to do is uh, talk about any specifics. I I want to go back to a story that uh, I can tell from my uh, childhood, having grown up in Chicago, and kind of my first learnings of of what was then African-American history and how it helped me be more uh, intellectually curious about American history, especially as it related to uh, African-Americans' contributions to it. You're listening to Voices of Reason.
Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking about uh, contributions of African Americans and and hist- in our American history as it relates to Black History Month. Uh, joining us today, uh, a local, uh, I, I don't know, uh, just civil rights and historian uh, and just an icon in our community, uh, Reverend France Davis, along with Adrian Andrews, who is Assistant Vice President for Diversity at uh, Weber State University, as well as their Chief uh, Diversity Officer. And I wanted to relate a story to you. So when I was uh, growing up in Chicago, uh, I, I learned a fair amount about black history, but um, one of the things, my parents, uh, we had uh, two sets of encyclopedia and all kinds of other things. My mother's a kind of a voracious reader, and though I didn't necessarily inherit that from her, uh, I did uh, learn a lot by uh, having those resources at my uh, at my uh, availability whenever I wanted. So we were asked to do, and I want to say this was like, I don't know, third, fourth grade or something like that, uh, kind of a book report on uh, somebody f- from uh, black history. And what I didn't want to do was choose, like, you know, the usual suspects, right? So which was back then uh, George Washington Carver, or uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And so what I chose was a fellow named William Steele, and I'm trying to find out more information about him, but I remember he was an abolitionist. So, like, to me, that was my first foray into learning more about my own culture, my own history. And it helped me, uh, give me this intellectual curiosity to learn more rather than what was kind of what was being taught to me. This is my ability to get more information for myself, enrich my own uh, understanding of myself and, you know, the people who came before me. And I think, fortunately for me, I had that uh, support at home and and to a large degree uh, from my teachers at school because we had a lot of uh, African-American educators in my school. uh, And so they kind of helped, uh, you know, uh, encourage that kind of learning from us. But we don't. Not everybody is as fortunate as as I've been. So in in that way, I want to ask you, Adrian. So how how is it that, from an academic point of view, uh, certainly, how do you get uh, more kids to understand what has happened and and the connection between African Americans' contribution to uh, American history? Well, that's by being inclusive in your educational practices, no matter what they are. It doesn't matter if you're teaching in science or engineering or English or creative writing or history. You're bringing in multiple narratives and perspectives and histories and documentation that comes in many formats. What that requires is that educators actually engage in a critical pedagogy that says there are multiple narratives that create the history from the past, not the singular narrative that is how we lived. Because, as Reverend Davis said, you know, who shaped what counted began Mm -hmm. at the founding of this nation. And the reality that um, black men were counted at as three quarters or three fifths of a person person. is directly indicative of property rights. That's not about wanting them to be able to vote or have rights. It's allowing the property owner to have additional rights as a owner and able to vote and be engaged in the political system. So leveraging us as property versus recognizing our humanity as African-Americans or slaves Mm -hmm. um, coming to this, being stolen and brought to this country because we didn't come here of our own volition, um, that makes a difference. And so until we talk about who gets to shape the knowledge, how it gets to be defined, who gets included in those conversations and excluded is critical. And we see that in our everyday experiences, when we think about um, the sort of the American West and we think about cowboys, we don't think about the fact that one in four cowboys were African-American, but they were. 
in all of the stories that get told in the media, what do you see? Not black cowboys, right? right? And yet we know that that is actually true. Is that, I heard some, um, this could be a, a folklore, but isn't that why they call them boys? Uh, that I do not know. No, just um, but the black cowboys were everywhere, everywhere doing this work and integrating the American West. And yet that's not included in our history. Let me give you a horrifying example of that from my own uh, racially uh, small experience, <laughs> I would say. Um I grew up in Alaska. Limited. Yeah, limited, limited. I grew up in Alaska, and so most of the people of color I knew were, uh, I, I knew one African-American human being um, until I came to college uh, in Utah. So you can, so I went from Alaska to Utah, so there you go. There's my experience. <laughs> but um, so I most, what I knew mostly was through books, but I was covering rodeo in my early days, and I ran into Fred Whitfield, who's a world champion roper, one of the best there is, and uh I really he was I think he was sort of early in his career when I first no 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 I know who you're talking about this I was like yeah so I didn't I never seen a black roper and so I went up to him and I said hey I'm a reporter here in Salt Lake I wonder if I could do a story on you and he said yeah why are you asking me (laughs) (laughs) and I said and I said because I've never seen a black roper and he said I'll do it with you because you're the first person to tell me the truth. (laughs) But I said, I just want to know how you got into this. And he told me about it. He wasn't living on a ranch or a farm. And he had friends who were into rodeo and and he wasn't into traditional sports. But it's really the first time I thought about how much my my interests were shaped by my socialization and by stereotypes. Right. So I thought that was, and I do it. I have done it throughout my career and I've been, people have been very kind to me, but it has also one of the reasons I love this job is you can learn if you want to, and you can help other people learn. And I, I mean, and this man sitting right next to me, Reverend Davis was one of the best teachers I had. So Reverend Davis, when, when you hear this kind of thing, I mean, having kind of experiences from a, a longer point of view than we have, how do you, for, for people like us, how do you learn to uh, accept the way things are but still want to be able to affect some kind of positive change? Well, I think you appreciate what is, but you also pursue what has not yet been achieved. And I think that all of us have the responsibility to get to know people different than ourselves and realize that they are human beings, that they are just like us in many ways, uh, different in some ways, but in other ways are very much the same. And unfortunately, uh, when we write our history books, oftentimes we leave out uh, anybody other than those who are like us, as uh, Adrian has been, saying, has been saying. And we, we kind of look at those people like us as the ones that probably have done the most. I always feel like when we, we, we seldom <coughs> recognize people who are foreigners even, let alone, uh, you know, if they're not American, uh, th- their contributions to, to the world themselves. By the way, I want to mention, so it was William, St- I knew there was something different about this fellow. His, it's actually William Still, like S-T-I-L-L, and he was the person who actually coined the Underground Railroad. And so, I mean, those are kinds of things, as you, when, you, when you're young and you're able to learn stuff like that, it, I don't know, it just, there's something in me that just feels better realizing that I just learned something that most people don't know, but it's truly important in, in, in the way we uh, we grew up. But that's he was about- also quite a musician, uh, William <laughs> Steele, uh, and much of the music that we claim historically, William uh, Steele was the one who put it down on a piece of paper so that we'd have it in 2020. Excellent. And that's about representation. 
Um, when you don't see people who look different from yourselves, then what is possible in the world becomes very limited to the people who do look like you. Or um, conversely, it may look like people who look like you don't ever contribute anything because you don't ever see them in leadership mm. roles or in the history texts or in film or media. And so representation matters, which is also why, it, why it's critical that our classroom spaces be inclusive in the information that is shared and taught so that what is possible is also recognized as what has happened. Because who created the first stoplight system? Garrett A. Morgan. There you go. But how many people know that Garrett A. Morgan is an African-American man? Probably very. And he also, uh, the gas mask too, by the way. Right. Yeah. But people don't know that. People don't know that every time I stop at a stoplight, I think about the fact that this is an invention from somebody who looked like me. And I don't get to walk around all day, every day, knowing that because we don't share the history or the knowledge of these pieces, whether it's somebody who identifies as African-American, Hispanic, Latinx, Asian, Pan-Asian, uh, Native. It, it makes a difference because suddenly we see ourselves as part of the fabric of the nation, the fabric of the culture that has come before us and that will guide us into our next steps. When we come back, I want to continue the discussion on some of those contributions, if we can actually come up with a few of those, uh, just to let people know and get kind of whet their appetites as to what can be learned and what can be uh, understood about <clears throat> the growth of America and uh, the contributions of African-Americans to it. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back with Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're with, with uh, Reverend France Davis, uh, who is uh, just a, a local historian and a person that everybody in this room uh, admires uh, just a, a great deal here in Salt Lake City, uh, who is a former pastor of the uh, Calvary Baptist Church. And also uh, Adrian Andrews, Chief Diversity Officer and Assistant Vice President for Diversity at Weber State University. Uh, Amy actually had an, uh, a notion uh, regarding how she came to understand more about contributions uh, well, from African Americans. Well, I, I think that I, I definitely believe that the educational component is the key to changing things because um, uh, it doesn't just impact like what we know and and you know who gets quoted in a newspaper article or whatever. It it it, it impacts who we admire and who we aspire to be and who we hold out as. Um, a virtuous or, you know, a person that um, when we use when we throw up a quote, you know, I mean, I uh, and there's more than just like a couple quotes. Right. Like I told you every day and I've been reading a Nelson Mandela quote because I find his perspective really helpful to me when I'm discouraged, when I am, you know, really in a dark place. Um, but I am, a you know, Toni Morrison is. I, I, I was telling Jason, I have audiobooks. I used, I was just recently listening, re-listening to her read her books. Um, and I re-listened to Maya Angelou's autobiography because I feel like it's a pep talk in a way of resilience. And um, I don't know. I have, I have worked 20 years in sports and I spent a lot of time being the only woman in the room. And uh, I still don't feel like I understand what it's like to be culturally the only person in the room. Right. 
Well, it's interesting that you bring up Nelson Mandela. I was just in South Africa uh, two weeks ago and went to the place where he was jailed, where Gandhi was also in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet uh, when we think about uh, people in America, in the United States of America, we don't even uh, think of those kind of names except mm-hmm. uh, the name of Martin Luther King and a few others that are highlight. Uh, One of the things I think that we need to uh, encourage people to do is to read the books of Gwendolyn Brooks, of Toni Morrison, of Margaret Walker, of Maya Angelou. Uh, I think we also ought to take a look at the local uh, people, people Mm -hmm. like Alberta Henry, people like Fanny uh, Jackson, Mm -hmm. uh, people like uh, Mignon uh, Richmond, uh, Sandra Hollins, and the kind of things that are happening to her. Uh, currently uh, demonstrate how little we know and believe or respect those who are different than we are. And I think I I just had a conversation with a family member recently about um, the Confederate uh, monument issue, right? I think think what we know impacts how we view political issues, right? And I said... um, uh, name for me, you, you, you believe these statues should remain because they're just monuments to these soldiers and what they and the, just their love of country, which I see is not the case. But but I said, then name me one memorial to slaves to the to, to what we did to every African-American person and their descendants that live in this country. Na- fine. Name me one. And. He said, well, there's got to be one, but there's there's not that there's none. Right. And I said, that's one of the things that struck me. It was when I went to Tanzania and saw, you know, the square where they sold people and the places I told Jason changed my life. And um, I saw memorials to that horrific thing that we as human beings did. Right. White, mostly white people, but also, you know, in other countries, other people did it. But it was mostly black people who were the. Uh, Africans who were the victims of this, right? Well, and that's owning the history. That's saying this is part of our past. This is what we've done. And this is why we will never do it again. And that's why um, Holocaust remembrance is so powerful, because this is um, a religious group of individuals who've been able to rally the world behind them around their history around the genocide to say this is not acceptable and should never happen again. And we recognize every year Um, during Holocaust remembrance, what happened, why it happened, how it began. And we can see the horrors of it. And see, to me, how many movies, how many books, how many. I went to the Holocaust Museum. I spent seven hours there. And and you live every single horror. You could spend days. There's not a museum. There's not a monument like that. Now there is the the newly opened in 2017 to the lynching memorial, Mm -hmm. which Jason knows I'm like constantly trying to finagle (laughs) a way for us to go there. But but I I I will go there. But I I want this to I want to be able to spend seven hours somewhere like I did at Pearl Harbor, immersing myself in. The reality of what happened, not just some superficial. The other other component of this is people think about slavery and they think that's 400 years ago. That's a lifetime ago. That wasn't my fault. That wasn't me. And that's sort of. Yeah. People can have that frame. It's it is a scapegoat. Instead, say slavery happened. This is what we did. Why did we do it? What were our arguments for it? Suddenly, we can start to deconstruct what we did then versus who we are today, Mm -hmm. what we believe now, and what we are willing to do. And this is where I'll plug the Uncivil podcast, 
which is a podcast that takes a look at the Civil War and how the tentacles of that reach to today in banking, in real estate, Mm -hmm. in our military, in our education system. There is not a system of government in this country that was not impacted negatively by slavery. And that's what reparations are all about. Reparations are about trying to figure out how to make those connections between the way people were treated because they were African American and the economic development that has occurred in our country. And we've got to do a better job at that. I want to, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a, a kind of a quick switch here because, so again, I, I want people to know that there are folks out there who we, we haven't heard about, right? So I, we, we mentioned William Still earlier. So I just started off the top of my head, out of my little brain. I just first person I came up with for some reason was Carl Stokes, who was the first African-American mayor of a large city, which was Cleveland, Ohio, by the way. And he was before Tom Bradley, who was the mayor of L.A., uh, who's still those uh, uh, at least in L.A. He's uh, still the only black mayor they've ever had. And uh, they, they, uh, the airport is actually named after him, LAX. Uh, Shirley Chisholm, who is just a marvel who we never talk about. She was the first black woman to run for president. And this is in the 70s. Unbought, and, unbossed. That was her tag. She, I mean, just a force of nature, man. Hmm. And just totally, history doesn't um, revere her enough, in my estimation, considering and a, and what a she was up against. person That's as right. well. Oh, a serving Congress. Congress uh, person. Uh, Maynard Jackson, he was the first black mayor of Atlanta. Uh, Dr. Charles Drew, we, the whole world uh, owes a debt to him for creating what we now know as blood plasma and, and other medical uh, uses for blood. Uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar is a famous poet. Uh, they named high schools after that dude. Uh, Langston Hughes, Everybody should read Langston Hughes. <laughs> yeah. Your life will be better for it. Uh, James Baldwin, uh, one of the smartest people mm-hmm. you will ever come across. YouTube, uh, uh, James Baldwin on uh, Merv Griffin. People, you will, he will, he will knock your socks off. Uh, let's see, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, first black millionaire, uh, female uh, millionaire, and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, there's just so many people that. Let's throw in Katherine Johnson. You watch the movie Hidden Figures. That, they, right. Mm-hmm. So well, now about if we name some of those that are local. Uh, Emma yeah. Houston, for example, oh. who is currently uh, one of the highest level African American in Salt Lake County. Yes. Uh, Shauna Graves Robinson, judge. who is a R- judge right. and mm-hmm. a presiding judge. Uh, Gladys Hessler, who was a social worker uh, back in the day uh, after rearing her own children, became a social worker. Kathleen Christie, who rose to be assistant superintendent of Salt Lake City Schools. Uh, Sandra Hollins, as I mentioned earlier, who is the only African-American in the state legislature and And a woman as well as black. The Uh, reason we have Juneteenth Day is largely because of her efforts today. In Utah, there is recognized Juneteenth as a a state uh, recognized day. And Betty Sawyer had a lot to do with Absolutely. that. And how about fact, Judge Tyrone Medley? First Judge black. Tyrone Medley is retired, mm-hmm. uh, but was a third district uh, court judge and uh, uh, played basketball here, mm-hmm. went to law school here. Uh, significant contributions, and yet we don't even know his name. When we uh, come back, we're going to uh, kind of close this out and offer people some opportunities to find where, where they might be able to find more about these kinds of uh, wonderful people who have great stories to tell and who have helped shape our state our, and our nation uh, throughout history. You're listening to Voices of Reason.
Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking with Reverend France Davis and Adrian Andrews, who is the Chief Diversity Officer and Assistant Vice President for Diversity at Weber State University. Uh, Reverend Davis is a local historian who kind of reminded me that we left out some people just locally because we think of when, when we as living in Salt Lake mostly, uh, we often think about uh, this is kind of where the center of the universe for uh, Utah is and certainly uh, black Utah, but that's not really true. Adrian's laughing. Because Adrian, <laughs> who is, uh, you grew up in Ogden, right? I actually grew up in Layton, but my father was born and raised in Ogden. My grandmother, Betty um, Gillespie, was raised in Ogden. She was born in Texas, raised in Ogden. Her father came here with the railroad and Which is why that's isn't that how a lot of uh, African Americans settled here in Utah? Yes. A lot of them came. Uh, they came both to they came to three places: Ogden, Helper, Price, and the Salt Lake City. Oh, that's right. Price and had, in uh, those yeah. three areas, it was railroad centered that brought large numbers of African Americans here, as well as as Hill Air Force Base, as well as um, military military installations. So, for example, my grandfather, James Gillespie Sr., came here from Starksville, Mississippi, uh, during the military, his military duty in the 40s. The Mississippi State is there, right? Uh, That's correct. And uh, he came here and decided to stay when his tour was complete. And his extended family, which was very large, said, why are you staying in Utah? And he said, if not me, who? And there was already a community, a small community of African Americans here that he ended up having the opportunity to work with and help flourish and integrate into the community. He ended up being the president of the NAACP uh, for over 33 years. And his wife, Betty, ended up being um, an early high school graduate who went to Harvard or Howard University in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. came back and completed a tremendous career at Hill Air Force Base working with Equal Opportunity and Affirmative Action. My own father, James Gillespie Jr., um, worked in law enforcement here in Ogden, Utah. Of course, Marshall White um, was the first right. black police officer in Ogden, Utah. Um, and he was able to have a, a fantastic career as well in law enforcement and corrections here in the state. But then let's think about other folks. We can think about Darnell Haney, who was a dean at Weber College at the time. Mm-hmm. Still alive. Still alive. And active and, uh, artist. And an amazing artist. And in fact, about a month and a half ago, he gave me a painting of Dr. King for my office and his granddaughter brought it to me. And it's fantastic. He is still in our community, very active, engaged in the arts community, a recent recipient of the Ogden Mayor's Award for his artwork. Um, We can look at Alicia Washington and her sister Camille Washington. These two sisters are phenomenal individuals and the founders and operators of Good Company Theater in Ogden, uh, a theater company that focuses on um, plays and performance pieces about underrepresented audiences, and they spent the last year bringing incredible shows to our community. Um, Dee Dee Darby Duffin, who is here in Salt Lake, but I think of her wherever I am because I was a contemporary of hers in college at the University of Utah, and she's coming to Ogden to perform and do works there. There are all of these amazing people, including one of my mentors and truly um, an incredible friend, uh, Dr. Forrest Crawford, yep. who has been an individual who has spearheaded work in all avenues of social justice, whether it is with race, class, gender, ethnicity, for disability services. how many years services. has Dr. Crawford been around? He, he has been at Weber for over 40 years, years and he and, came yeah. as a football player from Oklahoma <laughs> and has made Utah his second home. And Utah would not be where it is today without his leadership, Absolutely. without his ability to build relationships and bridges and to 
guide people on how to be inclusive in history and in education. And as a teacher educator, because that's what his doctoral work is in, Mm -hmm. um, he is able to help transform the next generation of educators coming up into our schools. But it takes all of us, not just one of us. And it it requires that we recognize and validate the work of all of these people and not just one or two of these people. Plus, uh, we recently uh, from Ogden was Joe McQueen, who was funeralized at 100 years old. Uh, and, and just a few uh, weeks ago that that happened. He was but an he amazing happened to musician. have been here as a musician. He continued to play until his last <laughs> moment. Right. And uh, he played with some of the significant uh, became, national figures. Absolutely. Dizzy Gillespie and uh, people like that. Uh, also, he had a Lucille, uh, by the way. Yeah, uh, BB yeah. King gave him one of his guitars. That guy, right. he was right. he was something else. Also, uh, one of the things that we haven't mentioned very much is the legislative impact that African Americans have had. Reverend Robert Harris from Ogden was the first African American legislator in the Utah State Legislature. Terry who also Williams. who also took me to barbecue when yes, I went to interview yes. him. He said, "You got to come to Ogden absolutely. and uh, and hang out with me yeah, if you want to interview me." Terry Williams was the first black black senator in the Utah State Legislature. Uh, James Evans uh, followed later on. Uh, Dwayne Bordeaux. uh, Dwayne Bordeaux Mm -hmm. was in the legislature for many years. Absolutely. Uh, And, uh, you know, we just have a lot of people that have made significant contributions, and yet uh, we don't know very much about that. So uh, we only got like a, a couple of minutes left to go. I just want to. Uh, I just want. I want to. I want to. I, I gotta. Just, I can't let this opportunity pass. Uh, and I thought about writing this down in a card, and I thought I think the world should hear this uh, because we don't. I don't. I agree with, with everything that's been said today. We don't know enough. We don't engage enough. And I. I go to, um, like when I. I go to African American film. And I'm one of the few white people there. It makes me so sad. And I would just say that you're just missing out, especially we've talked about the artists. If you're if you haven't listened to the music or read the poems or read the stories of these people, you're just uh, your life will be so much richer. And that's really my desire for diversity is there's so much to learn and so many things to draw from in in these experiences. But I just have this little quick letter. I promise I'll be fast. Uh, Dear Reverend Davis, and I'll probably get emotional, but I'll try not to. I wanted to take a few minutes and let you know how grateful I am for your generosity of spirit. I'm also grateful for your time, your patience, your words of wisdom, uh, your beautiful example of tireless love. But mostly, I am grateful that you have been so generous spiritually. Your willingness to help me, especially as an idealistic rookie reporter whose only exposure to African Americans was through books. Um, I wanted to let you know you have been an invaluable teacher and mentor for me in understanding how important it is to represent people in all varieties of their experience, all varieties and textures of their experience, authentically. Uh, It has... uh, um, allowed me to see beauty and feel joy when others in my profession saw disadvantage and felt pity. It has allowed me to find teachers and lessons in places I never expected. Instead of using my position in the media to help them, they have used their stories to enlighten and change me. You are a living example of Christ's commandment that we love one another. And and I would add that your ability to take tough issues and fight some pretty discouraging problems with love has shaped the kind of activist I have tried to be. You have taught me so much, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your time, your insights, your honest and unflagging help, an example of how love transforms the giver before it ever changes the recipients. 
And I taught at the university African-American studies where lots of people were exposed to the positive <laughs> achievements that African-Americans have made mm -hmm. for many years. Retired about five years ago from that task. But we need more people who, from an education point of view, from a political point of view, from an economic point of view, from a social point of view, to point out that African Americans are an integral contribution to this society. That black history live. is U.S. history. It's, US it's history. our history. Absolutely correct. I want to say thank you to you both. I, I was really excited. I know Amy was yesterday when we were able to kind of confirm everything was going to be happening. And I'm so grateful that you were able to join us today. I want to say thank you uh, to uh, Dr. Davis and to uh, uh, Adrian for joining us today. And uh, if, join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have comments about our show, please contact us via email at amd. I'm sorry, VORAMED at uh, gmail.com or at VORJasonL at gmail. You can also find us on Twitter at AD on Sports and at Jason Lee One. Our show's Twitter handle is at VOR Podcast. Check out our uh, Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.